0: chapter two part two of the bronze eagle by baroness orxy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by dion Gines, Salt Lake city utah madame la duchesse had in the meanwhile followed hector along the corridor and down the finely carved marble staircase at a monumental door on the ground floor the man paused his hand upon the massive ormolu handle waiting for madame la duchesse to come up he felt a little uncomfortable at her approach for here in the big square hall the light was very clear and he could see madame's keen searching eyes looking him up and down and through and through she even put up her lorgnon, and though she was not very tall she contrived to look hector through them straight between the eyes is m le comte in there madame la duchesse deigned to ask as she pointed with her lorgnan to the door in the small library beyond madame la duchesse replied hector stiffly and she queried with sharp sarcasm is the antechamber very full of courtiers and ladies just now a quick almost imperceptible blush spread over hector's impassive countenance and as quickly vanished again Monsieur le comte he said imperturbably is disengaged at the present moment he seldom receives visitors at this hour on madame's mobile lips the sarcastic curl became more marked and i suppose my good hector she said that since Monsieur le comte has only granted an audience to his sister to-day you thought it was a good opportunity for putting yourself at your ease and wearing your patched and mended clothes eh once more that sudden wave of colour swept over hector's solemn old face he was evidently at a loss how to take madame la duchesse's remark whether as a rebuke or merely as one of those mild jokes of which every one knew that madame was inordinately fond something of his dignity of attitude seemed to fall away from him as he vainly tried to solve this portentous problem his mouth felt dry and his head hot and he did not know on which foot he could stand with the least possible discomfort and how he could contrive to hide from madame la duchesse's piercing eyes that very obvious patch in the right knee of his breeches madame la duchesse will forgive me i hope he stammered painfully but already madame's kind old face had shed its mask of raillery never mind hector she said gently you are a good fellow and there's no occasion to tell me lies about the rich liveries which are put away somewhere nor about the numerous retinue and countless numbers of flunkeys all of whom are having unaccountably long holidays just now it's no use trying to throw dust in my eyes my poor friend or put on that pompous manner with me i know that the carpets are not all temporarily rolled up or the best of the furniture at a repairer's in grenoble what's the use of pretending with me old hector Those days at Worcester are not so distant yet, are they, when all the family had to make a meal off a pound of sausages, or your wife Jean, God bless her, had to pawn her wedding-ring to buy M. le Comte de Cambrai a second-hand overcoat. Madame la Duchess, I humbly pray your grace, entreated Hector, whose wrinkled, parchment-like face had become the colour of a peony, and who, torn between the respect which he had for the great lady and his horror at what she said, was ready to sink through the floor in his confusion. "'A what, man?' retorted the Duchess lightly. "'There is no one but these bare walls to hear me, and my words, you'll find, will clear the atmosphere round you.' it was very stifling my good hector when i arrived there now she added announce me to m le comte and then go down to jeanne and tell her that i for one have no intention of forgetting worcester or the pond ring or the sausages and that the array of grenoble louts dressed up for the occasion in moth-eaten liveries dragged up out of some old chests do not please me half as much round a dinner-table as did her dear old streaming face when she used to bring us the omelet straight out of the kitchen she dropped her lorgnon and folding her aristocratic hands upon her bosom she once more assumed the grand manner Pertaining to Versailles, and Hector, having swallowed an uncomfortable lump in his throat, threw open the huge folding doors and announced in a stentorian voice, Madame la Duchesse d'Aurier de Gen. Monsieur le Comte de Cambray was at this time close on sixty years of age, and the hardships which he had endured for close upon a quarter of a century had left their indelible impress upon his wrinkled careworn face but no one least of all a younger man could possibly rival him in dignity of bearing and gracious condescension of manner he wore his clothes after the old-time fashion and clung to the powdered which had been the mode at the tuileries and versailles before these vulgar young republicans took to wearing their own hair in its natural colour now as he advanced from the inner room to meet madame la duchesse he seemed a perfect representation or rather resuscitation of the courtly and vanished epoch of the roi he held himself very erect and walked with measured step and a stereotyped smile upon his lips he paused just in front of madame la duchesse then stopped and lightly touched with his lips the hand which she held out to him tell me monsieur my brother said madame in her loudly pitched voice do you expect me to make before you my best versailles curtsy for with my rheumatic knee i warn you that once i get down you might find it very difficult to get me up on my feet again hush sophie admonished Monsieur le comte impatiently you must try and subdue your voice a little we are no longer in wooster remember but madame only shrugged her thin shoulders bah she retorted there's only good old hector on the other side of the door and you don't imagine you are really throwing dust in his eyes do you good old hector with his threadbare livery and his ill-fed belly sophie exclaimed m le comte who was really vexed this time i must insist all right all right my dear andr i won't say anything more "'Take me to your audience-chamber, and I'll try to behave like a lady.' A smile that was distinctly mischievous still hovered round madame's lips, but she forced her eyes to look grave. She held out the tips of her fingers to her brother and allowed him to lead her in the correct manner into the next room. Here M. Comte invited her to sit in an upright chair, which was placed at a convenient angle close to his bureau, while he himself sat upon a stately, throne-like armchair, one shapely knee bent, the other slightly stretched forward, displaying the fine silk stocking and the set of his well-cut satin breeches madame la duchesse kept her hands folded in front of her and waited in silence for her brother to speak but he seemed at a loss how to begin for her piercing gaze was making him feel very uncomfortable he could not help but detect in it the twinkle of good-humoured sarcasm madame of course would not help him out she enjoyed his obvious embarrassment which took him down somewhat from that high altitude of dignity wherein he delighted to soar my dear Sophie. he began at last speaking very deliberately and carefully choosing his words before the step which crystal is about to take to-day becomes absolutely irrevocable I desired to talk the matter over with you, since it concerns the happiness of my only child. Isn't it a little late, my good André, remarked Madame dryly, to talk over a question which has been decided a month ago? The contract is to be signed to-night. Our present conversation might have been held to some purpose soon after the new year, it is distinctly useless to-day.' At Madame's sharp and uncompromising words a quick blush had spread over the Comte's sunken cheeks. "'I could not consult you before, Sophie,' he added coldly. "'You chose to immure yourself in a convent rather than come back straight away to your old home as we all did when our King was restored to his throne.' the post has been very disorganised and boulogne is a far cry from brestalou but i did write to you as soon as victor de marmont made his formal request for crystal's hand to this letter i had no reply and i could not keep him waiting in indefinite uncertainty your letter did not reach me until a month after it was written as i had the honour to tell you in my reply and that same reply only reached me a fortnight ago retorted the comte when crystal had been formally engaged to victor de marmont for over a month and the date for the signature of the contract and the wedding-day had both been fixed i then sent a courier at great expense and in great haste immediately to you he added with a tone of dignified reproach i could do no more or less she assented tartly and here i am my dear brother and i am not blaming you for delays in the post i merely remarked that it was too late now to consult me upon a marriage which is to all intents and purposes an accomplished fact already that is so of course but it would be a great personal satisfaction to me my good sophie to hear your views upon the matter you have brought crystal up from babyhood in a measure you know her better than even i her father do and therefore you are better able than i am to judge whether Crystal's marriage with de Marmont will be conducive to her permanent happiness. As to that, my good André, quoth Madame, you must remember that when our father and mother decided that a marriage between me and Monsieur le Duc d'Agen was desirable, my personal feelings and character were never consulted for a moment, and I suppose that taking life as it is i was never particularly unhappy as his wife and what do you adduce from those reminiscences my dear sophie queried the comte de cambray suavely that victor de marmont is not a bad fellow replied madame that he is no worse than was m le duc d'agen and that therefore there is no reason to suppose that crystal will be any more unhappy than i was in my time but-there is no but about it my good andre crystal is a sweet girl and a devoted daughter she will make the best never you fear of the circumstances into which your blind worship of your own dignity and of your rank have placed her my good sophie broke in the count hotly you talk pardieu as if i was forcing my only child into a distasteful marriage no i do not talk as if you were forcing crystal into a distasteful marriage but you know quite well that she only accepted victor de marmont because it was your wish and because his millions are going to buy back the old cambrai estates and she is so imbued with the sense of her duty to you and to the family escutcheon that she was willing to sacrifice every personal feeling in the fulfilment of that duty by personal feeling i suppose that you mean st genis well yes i do said madame laconically crystal was very much in love with him at one time she still is but even you my dear sister must admit that a marriage with st genis was out of the question retorted the count in his turn with some acerbity i am very fond of maurice and his name is as old and great as ours but he hasn't a sou and you know as well as i do by now that the restoration of confiscated lands is out of the question parliament will never allow it and the king will never dare i know all that my poor Andre," sighed madame in a more conciliatory spirit i know moreover that you yourself haven't a sou either in spite of your grandeur and your prejudices money must be got somehow and our ancient family scutcheon must be regilt at any cost. I know that we must keep up this state pertaining to the old regime. We must have our lackeys and our liveries, sycophants around us, and gaping yokels on our way when we sally out into the open. We must blot out from our lives those twenty years spent in a democratic and enlightened country where no one is ashamed either of poverty or of honest work and above all things we must forget that there has ever been a revolution which sent m le comte de cambray commander of the order of the holy ghost grand cross of the order du lys seigneur of Montfleury and saint einard hereditary grand chamberlain of france to teach french and drawing in an english grammar school you wrong me there sophie i wish to forget nothing of the past twenty years i thought that you had given your memory a holiday i forget nothing he reiterated with dignified emphasis neither the squalid poverty which i endured nor the bitter experiences which i gleaned in exile nor the devotion of those who saved your life and yours he interposed and mine at risk of their own perhaps you will believe me when i tell you that not a day goes by but crystal and i speak of sir percy blakeney and of his gallant league of the scarlet pimpernel well we owe our lives to them said madame with deep-drawn sigh i wonder if we shall ever see any of those fine fellows again god only knows sighed Monsieur le comte in response but he continued more lightly as you know the league itself has ceased to be we saw very little of sir percy and lady blakeney latterly for we were too poor ever to travel up to london crystal and i saw them before we left england and i then had the opportunity of thanking sir percy blakeney for the last time for the many valuable french lives which his plucky little league had saved he is indeed a gallant gentleman said madame la duchesse gently even whilst her bright shrewd eyes gazed straight out before her as if on the great bare walls of her own ancestral home the ghostly hand of memory had conjured up pictures of long ago her own her husband's and her brother's arrest here in this very room the weeping servants the rough half-naked soldiery then the agony of a nine days imprisonment in a dark dank prison cell filled to overflowing with poor wretches in the same pitiable plight as herself the hasty trial the insults the mockery her husband's death in prison and her own thoughts of approaching death then the gallant deed after all these years she could still see herself her brother and jean her faithful maid and poor devoted hector all huddled up in a rickety tumbril being dragged through the streets of paris on the road to death on ahead she had seen the weird outline of the guillotine silhouetted against the evening sky whilst all around her a howling jeering mob sang that awful refrain sa arrah sa LES Aristo's a la lantern, then it was that she had felt unseen hands snatching her out of the tumbril. She had felt herself being dragged through that yelling crowd to a place where there was silence and darkness, and where she knew that she was safe. Thence she was conveyed. She hardly realized how to England, where she and her brother and jean and hector their faithful servants had found refuge for over twenty years it was a gallant deed whispered madame la duchesse once again and one which will always make me love every englishman i meet for the sake of one who was called the scarlet pimpernel then why should you attribute vulgar ingratitude to me retorted the comte reproachfully my feelings i imagine are as sensitive as your own am i not trying my best to be kind to that mr clifford who is an honoured guest in my house just because it was sir percy blakeney who recommended him to me it can't be very difficult to be kind to such an attractive young man was madame la duchesse's dry comment recommendation or no recommendation i liked your mr clifford and if it were not so late in the day and there was still time to give my opinion i would suggest that mr clifford's money could quite well regild our family scutcheon he is very rich too i understand my good sophie exclaimed the comte in horror what can you be thinking of crystal principally replied the duchess i thought clifford a far nicer fellow than de marmont my dear sister said the comte stiffly i really must ask you to think sometimes before you speak of a truth you make suggestions and comments at times which literally stagger one i don't see anything so very staggering in the idea of a penniless aristocrat marrying a wealthy English gentleman.' "'A gentleman, my dear!' exclaimed the Comte. "'Well, Mr. Clifford is a gentleman, isn't he? His family is irreproachable, I believe.' "'Well, then? But, Mr. Clifford, you know, my dear—' "'No, I don't know,' said Madame decisively. "'What is the matter with Mr. Clifford?' "'Well, I didn't like to tell you, Sophie—' immediately on your arrival yesterday said the comte who was making visible efforts to mitigate the horror of what he was about to say but as a matter of fact this mr clifford whom you met in my house last night who sat next to you at my table with whom you had that long and animated conversation afterwards is nothing better than a shopkeeper no doubt Monsieur le comte de cambray expected that at this awful announcement madame la duchesse's indignation and anger would know no bounds he was quite ready even now with a string of apologies which he would formulate directly she allowed him to speak he certainly felt very guilty towards her for the undesirable acquaintance which she had made in her brother's own house great was his surprise therefore when madame's wrinkled face wreathed itself into a huge smile which presently broadened into a merry laugh as she threw back her head and said still laughing a shopkeeper my dear comte a shopkeeper at your aristocratic table and your meal did not choke you why god forgive you but I do believe you are actually becoming human. I ought to have told you sooner, of course, began the Comte stiffly. Why, bless your heart, I knew it soon enough. You knew it? Of course I did. Mr. Clifford told me that interesting fact before he had finished eating his soup. Did he tell you that—that he traded in—in gloves? Well— and why not gloves she retorted gloves are very nice things and better manufactured at grenoble than anywhere else in the world the english coquettes are very wise in getting their gloves from grenoble through the good offices of mr clifford but my dear sophie mr clifford buys gloves here from dumoulin and sells them again to a shop in london he buys and sells other things too and does it for profit of course he does you don't suppose that any one would do that sort of thing for pleasure do you mr clifford continued madame with sudden seriousness lost his father when he was six years old his mother and four sisters had next to nothing to live on after the bulk of what they had went for the education of the boy. At eighteen he made up his mind that he would provide his mother and sisters with all the luxuries which they had lacked for so long, and instead of going into the army, which had been the burning ambition of his boyhood, he went into business, and in less than ten years has made a fortune." you seem to have learnt a great deal of the man's family history in so short a time i liked him and i made him talk to me about himself it was not easy for these english men are stupidly reticent but i dragged his story out of him bit by bit or at least as much of it as i could and i can tell you my good Andre that never have i admired a man so much as i do this mr clifford for never have i met so unselfish a one i declare that if i were only a few years younger she continued whimsically and even so hey but i am not so old after all my dear sophie ejaculated the comte eh what she retorted tartly You would object to a tradesman as a brother-in-law, would you? What about a de Marmont for a son, eh? Victor de Marmont is a soldier, in the army of our legitimate king, his uncle, the Duc de Raguse. That's just it, broke in Madame again. I don't like de Marmont, because he is a de Marmont. Is that the only reason for your not liking him? the only one she replied but i must say that this mr clifford you must not harp on that string sophie said the comte sternly it is too ridiculous to begin with clifford never cared for crystal and secondly crystal was already engaged to de marmont when clifford arrived here and thirdly let me tell you that my daughter has far too much pride in her ever to think of a shopkeeper in the light of a husband even if he had ten times this mr clifford's fortune then everything is comfortably settled Andre. and now that we have returned to our sheep and have both arrived at the conclusion that nothing stands in the way of crystal's marriage with victor de marmont i suppose that i may presume that my audience is at an end i only wished to hear your opinion my good sophie rejoined m le comte and he rose stiffly from his chair well and you have heard it andr concluded madame as she too rose and gathered her lace shawl round her shoulders you may thank god my dear brother that you have in crystal such an unselfish and obedient child and in me such a submissive sister frankly since you have chosen to ask my opinion at this eleventh hour i don't like this de marmont marriage though i have admitted that i see nothing against the young man himself if crystal is not unhappy with him i shall be content if she is i will make myself exceedingly disagreeable both to him and to you and that being my last word i have the honour to wish you a polite good-day she swept her brother an imperceptibly ironical curtsey but he detained her once again as she turned to go one word more sophie he said solemnly you will be amiable with victor de marmont this evening of course i will she replied tartly ah sa, monsieur my brother do you take me for a washerwoman i am entertaining the prefect for the super du contract continued the comte quietly ignoring the old lady's irascibility of temper and the general in command of the garrison they are both converted bonapartists remember hum grunted madame crossly whom else are you going to entertain madame furrier the prefect's wife and mademoiselle marchand the general's daughter and of course the d'umbrance and the genevois is that all some half-dozen or so notabilities of grenoble we shall sit down twenty to supper and afterwards i hold a reception in honour of the coming marriage of mademoiselle de cambray de brestalot with m victor du marmont one must do one's duty and pander to one's love of playing at being a little king in a limited way all right i won't say anything more i promise that i won't disgrace you and that i'll put on a grand manner that will fill those worthy notabilities and their wives with awe and reverence and now i'd best go she added whimsically ere my good resolutions break down before your pomposity i suppose the louts from the village will be again braced up in those moth-eaten liveries and the bottles of thin madoc purchased surreptitiously at a local grocer's will be duly smothered in the dust of ages all right all right i'm going for gracious sake don't conduct me to the door or i'll really disgrace you under hector's uplifted nose oh shades of cold beef and treacle pies of worcester and washing day do you remember all right all right monsieur my brother i am dumb as a carp at last and with a final outburst of sarcastic laughter madame finally sailed across the room while monsieur fell back into his throne-like chair with a deep sigh of relief chapter two part two